Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you would grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Ruth. Thanks, band. Great job. Uh, we are going to be concluding our series in the book of Ruth today. It's been seven weeks, and so we are going to uh, conclude the book, Ruth chapter 4. Um, it's been a wonderful series. It's been, it's been so encouraging to me. It's been life-giving to me as we've walked through this text, um, walked through this narrative, walked through this story, and it, it's just painted all these wonderful uh, lessons and pictures of our greater redemption that we have in Jesus. But as we conclude, as we finish, I want to just uh, ask ourselves this question. What, what's the lesson here that, I think that God wants us to learn out of this book? What is the lesson that we're to glean, that we're to understand, and that we're to cling to in this book after uh, we finish reading it, after we finish studying it for seven weeks? What do we take away from reading of this story in the Old Testament? And here's what I suggest as uh, one of the main lessons that I think the book of Ruth wants us to grab hold of, wants us as God's people to cling to is that the life of those following God, the life of the godly, the life of those longing to please God is not just a linear one. It's not a straight line. It's not just this point A to point B and a straight line to get there, right? It's not a straight line to glory, so to speak. But God eventually gets us there, doesn't he? The life of the godly is not like a 45, Interstate 45 driving to Dallas is just the straight line and it's the quickest possible route and it's just point A to point B and you got a few pit stops along the way. It's not like that. The life of the godly, as we've read the book of Ruth, as we've met these characters of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, is more like a backcountry dirt road in the mountains of Colorado. It's wavy, it's, it's switchbacks, there's uh, snowstorms sometimes, there's roadblocks, there's setbacks. Sometimes you have to literally turn around to go back the other way because you simply can't pass through what is in front of you to get to where you're going. It is a long and winding road and it takes a long time to get there. I went to Colorado for the first time, or take the back, second time a couple of years ago. Uh, with Ash and I went, it was when Ruthie was first born. Uh, she was about, well, she was six months old, I guess, when she, we were there. We went to this uh, great little mountain town, and we were trying to find a hiking trail. And it involved, uh, it was one of those guidebooks that you got to go this, you got you to see this um, amazing hiking trail. But it took, it was like a 30-minute drive to get there, and you're driving basically up this mountain to get to the trailhead. And I'm driving a rental car. <laughs> Luckily, it had uh, it was an SUV. It probably wasn't four-wheel drive. At least it had slightly bigger tires. We're driving up this mountain. It's in the summer. And it's just switchback after switchback. And it's this little tiny lane. And uh, off to the edge is just what looks like a million-foot drop to your death, right? And so we're just, Ashley's, uh, she's like, are you sure this, we're going the right, yes, we, you know, we're following the map, and here's, it says it's right here, and I'm going up further, and then, then we come to this, this bend in the road, and then another, I was like, oh, it's just, it, I think it's just right up there. At least that's what Google's telling me. And so I, of course, uh, blindly and foolishly just follow Google, not actually my own instincts, and we drive up this straight up, up the mountain in a couple more turns, and we get to a gate, and it says closed, private property, do not enter. And it's like, 
the road, our car, and then death on the other side, <laughs> and nowhere to turn around. And Ashley's like, oh, my. Ashley's beginning to have a panic attack. We've got the little baby in the back, and I'm like, okay, we got this. And so literally, pro dad move here, uh, I just put it in reverse. She's like, what are you doing? I'm backing down the mountain, right? We got we to gotta get, get off the mountain. I can't, there's no like Austin Powers turn here. If I mess up, it's, right? And so I just, and I'm backing down the mountain. Ashley says, she's stopped the car and she literally gets out of the car. She's like, if you're falling down this mountain, we're not taking me and the baby with us. I said, okay. And it was one of those moments where we, I literally had to, it felt like six miles. It was probably only like 200 yards, but back this vehicle down this windy mountain in a million and a half feet down to our death. We eventually got there, but the book of Ruth paints that kind of picture for us. These characters, it's like this one setback, one roadblock, one misstep after the next, and you're left wondering, what is going to happen to these people? What is going to happen to these characters? It just seems like one roadblock after the next. I kind of have a theory that I've developed as I've gotten older, and I, and, and I think the book of Ruth proves this true. Um, we kind of have two different versions of, of fun, I guess. So when you're reading Ruth and you're looking back on stories like that, you wouldn't qualify them or define them as fun, but looking back, there are moments that you remember more than sort of the cheap fun moments in life. And so I have this theory that you've got um, what's called like roller coaster fun, cheap thrills, and then you've got things that are wrought with difficulty and you have to kind of sludge along and you're not exactly sure what the outcome will be, but you know God has called you to something and you're willing to go around all the roadblocks and put your face toward whatever needs to be done to get there. And those, in my experience, as I've gotten older, the stories I tell my kids, the stories that I remember, the stories that sort of make me who I am are not... Uh, I rode a roller coaster once at Six Flags, which was really fun. The stories that really begin to make me and form me and shape me and, and give grit to my lives are the ones that in the moment are difficult. In the moment, they're wrought with roadblocks and um, snowstorms and all these different things along life, that, but you know where God is calling you and you're willing to turn around and find a new way to get there. And when I look back on those, I'm like, those were great. Those were, they were not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them great in the moment, but I look back on them now, and I realize the Lord was doing something. I don't really tell my kids about a roller coaster ride I rode 10 years ago. It was really fun in the moment, and I want to do it again because it was a thrill, but it was manufactured. And I think the book of Ruth is saying that the things that are really meaningful are the, sometimes the hard things. It's the setbacks and if you continue to trust the Lord through them, those are the things that begin to make you. Those are the things that give you resolve and grit. And so the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth, as we've been in it the last seven weeks, is a series of these setbacks. It's one setback after another, right up until the very end. I mean, every single chapter without fail has ended in a cliffhanger of a setback, and you're left wondering what is going to happen. So if you haven't been with us, uh, let me quickly review. Chapter 1, Naomi and her husband and her two sons were forced to leave their homeland in Bethlehem on account of a famine. 
The land of bread ran out of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. So they flee Bethlehem. They go to Moab, and they stay in Moab for 10 years where uh, their two sons, Malon and Kilion, take on Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. And chapter 1 ends with um, Naomi's husband dying and her two sons dying. This great tragedy. And Naomi is left at the very end of chapter one and she says this, she's, we end on this bitter complaint and she talks about how the Lord is dealing with her and she's wrought with emotion and she's, and she's upset, rightly so. And she says, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty as she's heading back to Bethlehem. She said, I, came, I went away full, but now I'm empty. And then she says this about God, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. But chapter two, hope dawns. We get a little glimmer of hope. And Naomi is filled with this new hope because we meet this new character, Boaz. And Boaz appears on the scene as a possible husband for Ruth. Something she never thought would happen with Ruth as they traveled back. But he doesn't propose. He doesn't ask her on a second date, if you will. Right? It doesn't seem that he's interested. At least that's how it seems at first. And so the chapter closes, brimming with hope and uncertainty and suspense. But then at the very end, the last statement, Ruth goes back and it says that she lived with her mother-in-law, right? It's like, oh, they, it didn't happen. He didn't, their story isn't resolving here. So we're left wondering what's going to happen to Ruth? What's going to happen to Naomi? Is this guy Boaz ever going to notice this girl Ruth? Is their story ever going to change? Chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, make a very risky move in the middle of the night. And Ruth goes to Boaz on the threshing floor and essentially proposes to Boaz. And she says, I want you to spread your wings over me as your husband. She has come to faith throughout this story where she asks the Lord that the Lord would spread his, her, his wings over her and that she says, your God will be my God to Naomi. And now she goes to Boaz, this man of moral integrity, a man that cares for the poor, a man that is uh, upstanding and a man of character who's known among the town. And she proposes to him at the peak of the barley harvest. And she says, will you now, the Lord has spread his wings over me and I'm now a child of God. Will you now, Boaz, spread your wings over me and be my husband? And right when we think the tragedy of this widow of Ruth, all the roadblocks that she's faced, the starvation, the sojourning to a different country, being in a foreign land, living with her mother-in-law, not understanding where her next meal was going to come from, and this moment where we're thinking, yes, Boaz is finally going to, is going to be with her, and they're going to live happily ever after, and this, this beautiful love story, a roadblock sets up right in front of them, dead end, private land, turn around, essentially, back up down the mountain. And we learn that there is another man, according to Hebrew custom, that has prior claim to Ruth's hand. There's another redeemer. There's another one before Boaz that is supposed to take her hand. And Boaz, being of incredible integrity, a man of upright character, not willing to take a shortcut, not willing to suppress the truth of really what's going on, a man of, honest, of honesty, 
uh, wants to give this other man his lawful opportunity to redeem Ruth and the lands of her husband, Malon. And so chapter three ends again, as we saw last week, with another setback and a cliffhanger on the edge of our seat. Who's this other guy? What's gonna happen to Ruth? What's gonna happen to the royal line that needs to continue on? And so here's where we pick up. I got a lot, I'm gonna read through all of it. We're gonna finish today. So I'm gonna read chapter four in its entirety. Uh, and then we're quickly going to um, see some things for us this morning and be done. So buckle up. Here we go. You can read along with us. It'll be on the screen behind me. Ruth, chapter 4. After all that's happened, after all these roadblocks. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, here's the other man, came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And then he took 10 men of the elders of the city. And Boaz says, sit down here. And they sat down. And he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I might know, for there is no one else beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, this other man, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was a custom in the former times of Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one withdrew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and it was this manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, Boaz drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses to this day that I have bought all from the hand of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like those of the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore in Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in all of Israel, and he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. 
who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child, lay him on his lap, and, became, and she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Prez. Prez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered a hard-to-pronounce name. A hard-to-pronounce name fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Whew. A lot going on there. And so to pick up, after this midnight rendezvous in chapter 3, Boaz goes to the city gate. He goes out to the front of the gate where the all-official city business would have taken place. And this near kinsman, this other man, this one that we're thinking, this can't be him. It's got to be Boaz. He comes also because Boaz calls for him. And Boaz lays the situation before him. Boaz, a man of great integrity, doesn't shortcut anything. And he, and he, and he basically lays out all that's going to happen. And in verse 4, to our utter dismay, at the end of verse 4, this other man says, I will redeem it. And in this short story, in this text, the readers should be screaming, no, this can't be how it ends. All of this, and this other guy whose name we don't even know, Walks in, this can't be it. So again, there seems to be a setback. Another setback in the road of many, many, many setbacks. However, the irony of this, and I want us to catch this. This is, this is fascinating to me. The irony of this setback is it's being caused by righteousness. This setback isn't because someone else wronged them. It isn't, set, it isn't a setback because they made the wrong decision. It isn't a setback because of sin or folly. This is a setback because of righteousness. Because of righteousness. Boaz is doing what he ought to do. And church, I think sometimes we need to understand this. We need to learn this. This is a hard lesson. This is a hard lesson for us to learn, for me to learn, for our children to learn. That there's a lot of setbacks in life that seem like setbacks that we could owe to righteousness. Which would be presumed as a setback. Sometimes the right thing to do, sometimes the honorable thing to do, is the most difficult thing to do. See, there's always a shortcut. There's always a way to, to cheat the system. There's always a way to cover up that which should be done that we don't really feel like doing. We can, we can circumvent it. We can find a way around it. We can cheat the system. There's always a shortcut that we can figure out and find out and just do. But Boaz is a man of character. Boaz is a man of integrity. And even though this is a great setback in his mind from what he really desires and wants, he does the right thing. He doesn't just not tell this other guy when no one's looking. So often setbacks pop up because it's the right thing to do. And Boaz stands in righteousness even when it's the longer road. Even when it's the longer road. And so just when we're about to say, what? Throw in the towel, right? This, this can't be the end of this story. Don't let this other guy take Ruth. 
This can't be how it ends. Boaz says, probably he timed this out just right. He knew what he was doing. He says to this other kinsman redeemer, this other kinsman, he says, now you know, don't you, that Naomi has a daughter-in-law. And so when you do the part of kinsman redeemer, you're also going to take this woman as your wife and raise up offspring in the name of her husband, Malon. Right? And that guy's like, oh, I thought I was just getting some land, right? <laughs> you didn't, why didn't you lead with that one? I didn't realize all of that. It's like, and also you have to bring in the mother-in-law. So you get, it's a whole package deal. You get the lands, you get Naomi, and you get Ruth. At first he's like, well, I want some land. He's like, yeah, I'll buy it. It'll be great for my kids, my, my descendants. Oh, by the way, you also have to take Ruth as your wife and, and carry on the line. He's like, oh, I can't do that. Can't commit to that. And to our great relief in the story, the kinsman here, the other man says, I can't do it, verse six. And we're meant to go, praise the Lord. And this nameless man vanishes from the pages of scripture. I find it interesting that he's nameless. Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz would have all known his name. He was a nearer relative than even Boaz, right? But he's just not even mentioned. So it's, he's just gone this nameless guy from the pages of Scripture. And in sweeps Boaz, bounding over that setback, pressing forward, doing the right thing, even when it was not what he wanted. He bounds over that great setback, and he runs toward the great wedding feast with beautiful young Ruth on his arm. But something I haven't mentioned in the seven weeks that we've been preaching this so I wanted to save it right here to the very end. There's a cloud over all of this. There's yet another setback. And we learned of it all the way back in chapter one. There's another setback that clouds our thinking, that clouds the whole story, that clouds all of this as they've been walking through meeting of Boaz, courting Boaz, finding out there's another man, their, their even wedding and their impending child that uh, we were so hopeful will come one day. There's one last cloud that just hovering over all of this that leaves even Ruth wondering, Lord, what are you doing here? Is this really what you'll have for me? leaving Ruth even unsure about how things will end up. And the cloud is this. I believe Ruth is barren. Or at least it seems that the author wants us to believe that, wants us to know that. Why do I say that? If you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 4, all the way to the very beginning in the first few verses, we're told that Ruth had been married for 10 years to Malon, yet there was out, there was, they were without children. Ten years she was married to Malon, yet without a child. And so this would not have been normal in Jewish culture. People uh, then in this day and age, in this culture, did not choose to be childless. And so there's this great suspense. The suspense isn't even over yet. And so even in Ruth's story, the life of the godly, someone wanting to follow the Lord is not just this straight line. She's not sure how it's going to end up. It's one curve after the next. It's one curve after the next. But the story that we keep pressing into as they keep leaning into the Lord, hoping and trusting in the Lord, is that the best is yet to come. Is that the best is yet to come. Though it's not a straight line, 
though it's wrought with setbacks, though following the Lord is, seems like uh, a drive up to what you are thinking you're going to see, to only find a roadblock, to have to go back down and go the long way around, the best is yet to come. Those should be the signs along the way on the trail. But it's a hard way of getting there. So the cloud over the head of Ruth and Boaz, as we read at the conclusion of the story, is huge with mercy. We have what we, what we would think is a barren Ruth, wondering how I will carry on the family line. <laughs> and mercy breaks forth with blessing in verse 13 in chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception. The Lord did that. The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. We're to read this as a miracle from God. Ruth, the widow, unable to bear a child, faced with the impossible test of carrying on the royal line to King David and ultimately to King Jesus. How will she bear a son, the Lord? How do we even know this? What are some more clues besides chapter 1, verse 4? Well, the townspeople, in fact, knowing that this marriage is going forth, the townspeople pray for Boaz and Ruth that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah, that the Lord would deal with Ruth like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah were both barren, and the Lord opened their womb and gave them a child. The Lord does this. The Lord does this. The Lord does what we cannot. When we think things are helpless, when we think things have come to a dead end, when we think there is a roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, the Lord provides even in the midst of it. <coughs> Excuse me, the Lord sustains even Ruth and what I could imagine was 10 years of disappointment. The Lord's mercy rains down on her. But notice... As the story goes on, at the very end, the focus shifts. And Ruth, they, Ruth is gone from the pages at the very end of this. She's not mentioned again after the marriage and the birth. And Naomi is the focus of the end of the book. Many argue that the, this book should be called Naomi, not Ruth. And the focus is Naomi and this child. Why? Well, at the beginning of the book, Naomi was filled with bitterness. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but now I'm empty, she said at chapter 1. And here, as this story bookends and closes, there is a child in the lap of Naomi. For you and I to realize, for you and I to cling to hope, for you and I to understand that when we think all hope is lost, when we think that we are filled with emptiness, that there is nothing more to cling to, we can look to Naomi and see the provision of the Lord, and the Lord hadn't, hadn't left her. He hadn't left her hopeless. The Lord hadn't left her em with emptiness. It was just a few setbacks and a few turns, and there we have at the end of the story Naomi holding this child, filled, full with the Redeemer. And it says... In the midst of Naomi's long and twisted road that we've read about over the last seven weeks, it says the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying a son has been born to Naomi. Not Ruth. Isn't that interesting? Pointing to Naomi here. 
to show us that Naomi, that the Lord had not in fact left her empty. That wasn't true. Church, that's a great lesson for us. That's a wonderful lesson for us in this great book is we need to learn to wait and trust in the Lord and his timing. We don't like learning that lesson. We do not like waiting. We need to learn and wait and trust in the Lord even in the midst of all of our complaints against him. Like Naomi saying, the Lord has dealt so bitterly with me. I think she had right to say that in light of all the loss she had endured. But in the midst of our complaining, in the midst of a roadblock, let's trust him. Let's wait. Let's be patient. He is good. God is good. The lesson of Ruth is God is good. He is working through all the setbacks. He's working through all the roadblocks for our good and for his glory. Ruth was written to help us see all the signposts of grace along the way. To see the grace of God in our lives. To help us trust in his grace even when the clouds are dark. Even when the clouds are dark. Because that's how God works in the life of the believer. Every setback is like that for us. Every setback for the Christian is God is still at work even when we complain. That's good news for us. And so that's a great lesson for us to cling to, even in the midst of our complaining, even in the midst of dark clouds, God is still at work. He is still sovereign. He is still in control. His purposes reign supreme. We can trust him in the midst of what seems like hopelessness. He will not leave you hopeless. He will not leave you hopeless. He's sovereign. God's providence rules over all things. Just like it does in Ruth, just like it does in Naomi's life, and just like it does in Boaz. When Naomi lost her husband and her sons, as we read this story, God gave her Ruth, faithful, present, there. When she could think of no kinsman redeemer to raise up the offspring, the family name, to take on all that they had gone through, God gave her Boaz at just the right time. When Baron Ruth marries Boaz, God, says, gave her a child. God did. The point of the story is made in the life of Naomi. That's why it ends with Naomi. Our lives are not a straight line. There's setbacks, there's curves, but keep trusting, keep leaning into him, keep going. That's the road to glory. That's the road to glory. Now, the story of Ruth, if it just ended like that, if it just ended with this great couple and a grandbaby in the lap of grandma in this little Bethlehem village, um, hugging her new grandson, glory, this, all this idea of glory and redemption, these words we've been using, would be too big of words. It would just be a nice story that we can learn a few lessons from. But that's not where it stops. This story is meant to have us look up from this. It's meant to, to have us look up to the mountaintop that we're trying to get to. It's meant to give us great hope in the midst of the roads and the setbacks. It lifts our eyes. Verse 17 says that this child 
Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. And all of a sudden we realize that these little stories, our lives that we're leading, all the setbacks, all the things that we endure, all the things that we're going through, we are wrapped up in something much larger than we dare to dream or realize. Just like this family. God has greater plans in the midst of all of it. God had something greater in the midst of all of it. God was not only plotting for the the blessing of a few people in Bethlehem. He was preparing the coming of the greatest king that Israel would have ever known, King David, in their story. And the name of David carries with it the hope of Messiah one day. The new age of peace and righteousness and freedom from pain, freedom from tears, freedom from guilt, freedom from grief. And the simple little story, the simple little four-chapter story opens up to a great river of hope. Where there once was hopelessness. (coughs) That this son that would be born from the line of Ruth and Boaz from the line of King David, that there was another king coming from the same town of Bethlehem, a more significant son, not born just of a barren woman. Not that the Lord would give birth to a barren woman, namely Ruth, but an even more significant birth would come in this same town. That by the hand of God, born of a virgin, would come our great Redeemer, Jesus, from this line from the line of Obed, from the line of David. The book of Ruth wants to teach us that God's purpose in life is that us as people would be connected to something bigger than we could ever imagine. That's what we're anchored into. That's where our hope is. That's where it's found. Even in the ordinary, everyday Roadblocks and setbacks remain faithful. Put your eyes and hope and trust on our great Redeemer that came from this unlikely meeting. God's providence is in all of it. And so church, as we conclude this book, what I want us to cling to is that you find yourself right now in life and it's not just... Your life may not look like the five-year plan that you mapped out and the straight line to all the things you wanted to do and accomplish and see. You've experienced setbacks. You've experienced failure. You've experienced heartache. You've experienced all sorts of things in life. But the good news of the gospel, because of Jesus, because he has redeemed us, because all the things that we had questions about, he has taken, and we are now children of God. He has wrapped us up. He has bought us into something greater than just ourselves, and our life now has meaning, and it has purpose, and it has hope because of our great Redeemer. And so all the setbacks, all the turns, all the twists, all the roadblocks, are not just there, just as stumbling blocks of hopelessness, but we set our eyes to the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him went to the cross that we might now be children of God wrapped up in a great, amazing hope of our great redeemer. Our story is wrapped up in this story. And that's the good news of Ruth. That's the good news of Jesus. That's what we cling to. That's what helps us move forward, even in the face of setback after setback. We've got hope, church. We have great hope. The best is yet to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for 
this book, we thank you for the hope that we find in our great Redeemer. We thank you that this story of the kinsman Redeemer, Boaz, is but a shadow of our great Redeemer, Jesus. We thank you for the miraculous birth of Obed through a barren woman, Ruth, but we thank you that it points to a greater, more miraculous birth of that born of a virgin, Jesus, our Lord. And it's in him we place our great trust. It's in him we place our hope. It's in him that can cover our inadequacies. It's in him that we can hope and lean into when roadblocks come in our, in our lives, when setbacks pop up in our lives, when we can't see a way out, when we can't see a way home. We cling to hope because we're wrapped up in something bigger sons and daughters of the Most High, God's providential hand on each one of our lives. So Jesus, we thank you that you give us meaning and purpose. God, I pray that we as your people would cling to you, that in the midst of what seem, would seem like disappointment, you would help us be grounded in the hope that we have as children of God and help us know that we are not hopeless, that we are not left empty. But because of Christ, the best is yet to come. Whether this side of heaven or not, we have much to hope in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship in the church.